Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi there, and welcome back to the first uh, podcast from Explaining History uh, here in 2022. This is the 10th anniversary year of the Explaining History podcast. I started doing this podcast in about September 2012. Uh, so it's been a, a kind of a long old journey, really. And um, it's been great to have had so many amazing conversations with people all around the world who send me messages and we chat about modern history. So uh, this is a, a real honour, really, to be able to produce this podcast week in, week out. I know we've had a bit of a break over Christmas um, and to uh, talk about interesting stuff, which uh, I think it, much of it is, is very timely. I want to talk about China tonight. Um, and the reason why is I'm looking at Ranamita's China's War with Japan, which is a superb book um, to really focus on an enormous um, theatre of um, the Second World War. Uh, and to kind of break up the conventional historiography of, of the, the Second World War, which is a, a largely uh, Anglo-centric one, uh, that the war began in September 1939 when uh, Chamberlain's uh, entreaties to Hitler uh, finally fell on deaf ears. Well, for China, the war begins in 1937 uh, and the, the savagery of the war um, is felt particularly in uh, the bombing of places like Nanjing in, in 1938. The sorts of scenes that we see in um, Poland uh, following the, the Nazi invasion, um, it, uh, we, we, you, you could find in countless Chinese cities. And there's the scope of the war in China is uh, beyond really almost anything that kind of the Western imagination can can conceive of. Um, probably only the Soviet Union suffered um, greater losses uh, and, and greater destruction. A visiting uh, Japanese ambassador to China in the 1960s was greeted by Mao enthusiastically. He said, well, you know, if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for Japan, we'd have never come to power. So um, I have to thank Japan, really. And there is, uh, a, a, in China itself, a kind of a, a constant uh, fictionalisation of the Second World War, which was most controversially uh, seen uh, about three or four years ago, I think, um, with a, a film, um, a, a wartime movie with Mao um, appearing at the Cairo conference alongside uh, Churchill and Roosevelt. And of course it wasn't. It was the Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. So we're going to dive into uh, Ranomita's uh, China's War with Japan. And we're going to look at how the war in China is largely misunderstood. Uh, in the West, and also what in the late 1930s Western audiences thought about it, and they actually thought quite a lot about it. In the West, the living, breathing legacy of China's wartime experience continues to be only poorly understood. Many do not realise that China played any sort of role in the Second World War at all. Those who are aware of China's involvement often dismiss it as a secondary theatre. China's role was minor, this assessment goes, and its government was an uncertain and corrupt ally that made little contribution to the defeat of Japan. In this view, China's role in the war 
is a historical byway not worthy of full examination that is due to the major powers involved. One might guess that the West knows so little about China's wartime experience because the events of the conflict took place far from American and European eyes and had little relevance for anyone other than the Chinese themselves. But this was not true at all. The reverberations of the all-clear signal signals wailing over Chongqing after the massive air raids on the 3rd and the 4th of May 1939 were heard far beyond China's borders. So, I mean, a, a modern conceit uh, that I think we're, we're all a little guilty of, perhaps, is to assume that people necessarily had far less uh, access to information than we did and that we do now. Perhaps we can access information more quickly due to the, the internet and the power of social media. But you know, in those, in both cases, whether that's particularly um, uh, particularly good information is is a, a different question. But in the 1930s, radio, telegraph, and the the, the mass attendance at cinemas gave um, people an, an extraordinary degree of news literacy. And the ability to examine um, uh, the, the the kind of the growing world crisis through um, critical eyes. There were people who watched Pathé newsreels in British and French and American cinemas and looked on with horror at the destruction of Chongqing and Nanjing. There were people who read about it in newspapers. And there are people who had um, served, uh, had, who had fought um, as volunteers in the Spanish Civil War, for example, or who were involved in fundraising in uh, Britain and uh, France, uh, America, Canada and other countries for um, the International Brigades and for the Spanish Republic, who looked at China and saw something largely similar. There were British um, government ministers and French government ministers, Belgian and um, Dutch government ministers who looked with horror at what was happening in Spain, um, the events like the bombing of Guernica. Uh, and then they looked in horror at the, uh, the bombing of Chinese cities. And they drew pretty obvious conclusions about what air power in this new age of warfare would do to their cities. And the lesson that was drawn throughout the 1930s was uh, from these uh, incidents. And of course, you have the uh, the bombing of Abyssinia beforehand, is that now war, um, as George VI put it famously in his speech, war would not be contained to the battlefield, that an entire new age of military barbarity would be uh, prosecuted against their countries. And this meant that very powerful countries like Great Britain suddenly felt a lot more defenceless, uh, a lot more denuded of defence. There was this rapid race to build an air defence system in 1938, 1939. So um, Ranamita writes, the agony of Chongqing, uh, as the city was then known in the West, uh, became a symbol of resistance to people around the world who were now certain that a global war could not be far off. At the time, the conflict between China and Japan was one of the most high-profile wars on the planet. W.H. Auden famously wrote a series of sonnets from China in 1938, and one of them linked places where life is evil now, 
Nanking Dachau. For many progressives in the West, the war in China was linked inextricably with the Spanish Civil War. And many observers, Auden, along with his companion Christopher Isherwood, the photographer Robert Capper, and the filmmaker Joris Ivans, went seamlessly from one war to the other, reporting on them as connected sites in an overall overarching global struggle by democratic or at least progressive governments against fascism and xenophobic ultranationalism. In Britain, the China Campaign Committee raised funds for the defence of China. Even the Times, um, Times, Time magazine's Theodore White, later one of Chang's most powerful detractors, declared that the Battle of Chongqing was an episode shared by hundreds of thousands of people who had gathered in the shadow of its walls out of a faith in China's greatness and an overwhelming passion to hold the land against the Japanese. And unlike Spain, where the war ended in 1939, the war in China became part of a global conflict that would engulf Asia and Europe too. One of the problems um, for China, for the, the remembrance of, of China, for the, the, the popular remembrance of China uh, in the West, is that the, the war ended in China um, in circumstances that aren't really kind of uh, conducive to to a, a, a simple storytelling, which is always always favourable when you're trying to tell kind of popular ideas about about wars. Um, there is a civil war that begins uh, immediately at the end of the Second World War, as the uh, the Japanese go into full retreat. Uh, the communists and nationalists uh, resume a war that's been raging since 1927. And the uh, communists win. Uh, in the eyes of Britain and America, in the victorious powers in the Second World War, the wrong side wins in China by 1949. And uh, the way in which um, the British and Americans, who seem to kind of dominate the way in which the Second World War is told at all for decades, the way in which they choose to um, remember the uh, remember the war um, leaves little room for a Chinese narrative. Um, the in, within China uh, itself um, for uh, decades and really until the, the, the present day, the idea that it was um, large numbers of Chinese nationalist troops that held out against the Japanese, that did the bulk of the fighting, uh, and that the, the communists waited opportunistically for the, uh, uh, for, for the Japanese to be defeated, but in the process for the, uh, the nationalists to be weakened, and hopefully for, uh, as eventually does happen, for Stalin to change his mind about Chiang Kai-shek and support Mao instead. Branamitter writes, For almost any major country in the Americas, Europe or Asia, the US, Britain, France, Germany, Japan, it would be ludicrous to suggest that the experience of the Second World War was not relevant in shaping that society in the years since 1945. From the United States' sense of itself as a global policeman, to Britain's attempt to find a post-imperial role as a reluctant European state, to Japan's desire to recast itself as a peaceful nation still living in the shadow of the atomic bombs, the war's present-day legacy is clear. In contrast, the role of China, 
the very first country to suffer from uh, hostilities by an Axis power, has remained obscure in the decades since 1945. Contemporary China is thought uh, of as the inheritor of Mao's Cultural Revolution, or even the humiliation incurred by the Opium Wars of the 19th century, but rarely is the product of the war with Japan. Today, the names of battles and campaigns where China's fate was at stake, Taizhuang, Changsha, Ichigo, lack the immense cultural resonance of Iwo Jima, Dunkirk, the Bulge, Saipan, Normandy. Why did China's wartime history fade from our memories, and why should we call it now? But simply, that history disappeared down a hole created by the Cold War, which uh, from which it has only recently reappeared. The history of China's war with Japan became wrapped in toxic politics for which both the West and the Chinese themselves on both sides of the Taiwanese Straits were responsible. All sides aligned their interpretations of the war with the Cold War certainties. Japan and China traded places in American and British affections between 1945 and 1950. The former moved from wartime foe to Cold War asset, while the latter changed from ally against Japan to angry and seemingly unpredictable communist giant. The question of what had happened in wartime China became tied up in the US and was politically charged uh, with the politically charged question of who lost China. Um, if you've listened to any of the things I've done on McCarthyism, I'm sure many, 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 um, you'll know that by uh, you know 1949. Um, the, uh, America was thrown into crisis by um, the uh, discovery that uh, uh, the Soviet Union had tested an atomic bomb and also the um, loss of China to communism and the suspicion by right-wing Republicans and uh, conspiracy theorists in, um, that uh, the State Department was full of communist sympathisers and the State Department was somehow somehow colluded to help the communists uh, into China, which is a view which wasn't entirely wasn't entirely inaccurate. It was just highly highly misleading. Um, the State Department had made calculations on um, whether the nationalist regime was viable and worth backing, and then decided it it it, it wasn't. Um, and not that they had really hoped for a communist regime to come to power, but had certainly washed their hands of, of the nationalist one. Um, but the uh, the question of what China's role had been during the Second World War is lost uh, amidst the, the kind of the panic and the anger of this period of time. Um, and as Rana Mitter writes, in the poisonous political atmosphere of the time, it became nearly impossible to make a measured assessment of the contributions and flaws of the various actors in China. After 1949, the newly formed People's Republic of China, on the one, on the other hand, um, official histories were were revised to attribute the victory over Japan um, to the leading role of the Chinese Communist Party, which, as we as we have discussed, is misleading and even uh, completely untrue. The role of the nationalists was dismissed. It was stated that the wartime government had been more obsessed with fighting the communists than the Japanese and was anyway badly run, corrupt and exploited for the Chinese people. All of those three things are true. 
Scholars in Taiwan, where the nationalists had fled after 1949, did argue against this view, but in turn their views were often perceived as suspect because they were produced under a dictatorship ruled by Chiang Kai-shek, who was still concerned to rescue his tarnished reputation. Furthermore, archives from the wartime period on the mainland were closed to scholars. As a result, the nuances required for an understanding of the period never emerged. Instead of tragedy, the war in China was painted as a melodrama, with villains and heroes cast in black and white. All sides became convinced that the war was an embarrassing period, irrelevant to the supposed glories of Mao's China, but also of no interest to the West, which sought to forge a peaceful, post-war world. Few wish to recall a depressing period that seemed to mark a low point in China's long modern history of disasters. Of course, Mao was able to fight his own war um, fairly shortly afterwards. In 1952-53, China fought the Korean War, which Mao declared to be um, the first truly great victory over capitalism. Uh, He claimed that he had uh, defeated uh, the USA, which uh, wasn't strictly true and yet wasn't strictly untrue either. And the the Korean War was uh, held up by the regime as being, and, and the victory in the Civil War, as being really the the essence of um, uh, Chinese or uh, the new People's Republic of China's uh, military prowess, because uh, Mao uh, was able to uh, suggest that China, not the Soviet Union, was now taking the fight to the capitalist world and that whatever was happening in the Soviet Union was a kind of like a stagnation of communism uh, and that um, if communism or uh, Maoist communism uh, was anything um, and really this is a kind of like a, a hodgepodge of, of Maoist ideas um, of, of Mao's ideas uh, it was a, a struggle against imperialism it, um, far more than Soviet communism is the, the anti-imperialist creed and of course by 1945 the Soviet Union with its armies almost at the the edge of um uh, well at the edges of western europe isn't able to make the the case that it is particularly an anti-imperialist power though of course the soviet union uh, never made any claims at all that the uh, new satellite states it created in eastern europe were um, you know, remotely um, part of it of its empire ranamita writes of course It was not unique for any society to stress those parts of the wartime narrative that helped to build its own national self-esteem. Until the 1970s, many Western histories of the war concentrated on the Western European front, downplaying the crucial contribution of Russia. In turn, the US's army had extensive use of the Great Patriotic War of 1941-45 at all levels of society to remould itself in the post-war era and to seek gains in the international community. Uh, The Soviet Union really dined out on its uh, contributions to victory for many, many years. And it's only 1956 with the Budapest um, uprising and 1968 with the, the Prague Spring that the and the, the crushing of both, that the anti-fascist victories of the Soviet Union in the Second World War are kind of negated. And the idea that there, that there is anything progressive about the Soviet Union at all really is, is, is finally dispelled 
in, internationally. In contrast, the war against Japan was used uh, very selectively as a national rallying point in post-war China. When the wartime period was referred to in public, the only parts of the experience that were discussed in detail were the events in the revolutionary base area with his capital at Yunnan, where Mao had pioneered a peasant revolution. There was no mention of the bombing of Chongqing or of wartime collaboration with the Japanese, um, with the Japanese or the alliance with the US or Britain. There was not even much discussion of Japanese war crimes such as the Nanjing massacre. This situation changed radically in the 1980s, however. The People's Republic of China reversed most key parts of its narrative about the war years. Um, a few um, months ago, I did a podcast about post-Maoist China and about the, the, the kind of the uh, brief thawing of censorship and um, artistic um, repression under Deng Xiaoping, really for the purpose of kind of junking the Mao era completely and utterly. The party decided to revive memories of the wartime period when nationalist and communist fighters had stood together to battle the foreign invader, regardless of party differences. New museums of the war sprang up to commemorate Japanese war atrocities, including Nanjing. Movies and other museums gave the nationalist military a much more prominent role moving away from the historical position that the Communist Party had been at the forefront of wartime resistance and huge amounts of new scholarship poured forth using archives and documents that had been locked away for decades. And I suppose in an era where um, the uh, chairman of the party, um, Deng Xiaoping, was saying essentially it um, it doesn't matter whether the, the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. When you're in a period of time where um, uh, ideology is being junked for pragmatism and where it sort of doesn't particularly um, matter whether one is adhering to, uh, well, it's kind of important that one doesn't adhere to Maoist nostrums, um, being able being able to look at uh, all sides of the struggle against Japan and being able to mention to or, or to kind of uh, discuss how different perspectives combined in a national spirit to uh, defeat the Japanese um, had a powerful resonance with what Deng was trying to do in China during uh, the 1980s. Okay, so we're going to um, come to an end there, and um, I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Do check us out at www.explaininghistory.org. Um, uh, throughout the year, I put up uh, new articles and information there and other helpful stuff, and you can come and find us at the uh, Explaining History podcast Facebook group, and there's always some sort of conversation about things going on there too. Um, thanks very much for listening. I'll catch you on the next uh, podcast and uh, all the best and uh, a happy 2022 to all of you. Bye bye.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.